This podcast is supported by an educational grant provided by Abbott Nutrition. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Nilesh M. Mehta, MD, about the guidelines for the provision and assessment of nutrition support in the pediatric critically ill patient, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition published in the July 2017 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Mehta is the Director of Critical Care Nutrition in the Division of Critical Care Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, and he's an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. He is also the President-Elect of ASPEN. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share, Dr. Mehta? No, Dr. Parker, uh, no disclosures to share. Okay. First of all, Nilesh, why do we need guidelines for nutrition? Thank you, Dr. Parker. First of all, uh, thank you for this opportunity. It's uh, it's a pleasure uh, to talk with you, um, a topic close to my heart and relatively um, uh, important in the critical care arena. Your question about guidelines is very um, key. I believe uh, we as intensivists have faced... Uh, the challenges with scant evidence and need to provide the best quality of care that we can to our patients at the bedside. We make bedside decisions every day, particularly um, about key aspects of intensive care, and nutrition is no uh, different there. We try to pick the optimal goals, the timing of nutrition, the route, the strategies to deliver the best and the optimal nutrient in a safe fashion. And we hope that these decisions are based on best evidence and where uh, this evidence has been shown to improve patient outcomes. Um, As an individual, I I look to guidelines to provide uh, or try to fill in the gaps in my uh, resources, skills to be able to access, analyze, and interpret all the evidence out there. And, and, And then come up with recommendations that uh, are truly quality of care and therefore uh, potentially improve outcomes. On the other hand, um, in critical care and nutrition, there are scant guidelines, uh, especially scant randomized controlled trials to guide us in nutrition decision-making. In that case, again, the guidelines help individuals, but also us as a society and a community to eliminate variation in practice. Whenever there is lack of evidence, there is rampant variation in practice, and we don't learn much when everyone does what they uh, assume or uh, perceive that is best practice. So in in a way, I believe the guidelines for nutrition would help us in a decreasing variation where there is no evidence so that we can learn uh, going forward, but more importantly, where there is evidence, try to curtail harmful Uh, inefficient and costly um, therapies and try to to make it more likely that we incorporate those practices that have been proven to be beneficial. Tell us about the process for developing these guidelines between um, the two societies, uh, SCCM and ASPEN. Sure. Um, These current guidelines um, represent the first joint effort by Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition are two large organizations representing intensivists and those practicing nutrition care uh, to come together and uh, develop uh, some guidance in the field of nutrition in the pediatric intensive care. 
uh, environment. So I was very excited when uh, this uh, was emerging. There were previous set of guidelines by Aspen in 2009 um, that I was involved in, but two things that happened since then. One, uh, an exciting development of a plethora of new evidence, both controlled trials but also large observational studies that needed to be addressed. But more importantly, this uh, combination of two large organizations uh, that seem to be motivated to produce these guidelines. The first step was to identify the need for these guidelines, uh, and that was very reassuring uh, for those of us who struggle with questions around nutrition. The board of directors of Aspen and the board of regents at SECM uh, together appointed a task force of members that would address this large um, uh, effort. Uh, they made sure that people from multiple disciplines were represented uh, to be uh, uh, clear, this, these were uh, people uh, that represented both organizations in a balanced fashion, but more importantly, they represented disciplines such as intensive care, uh, GI nutrition. We had uh, MDs from both arenas. We had dietitians, nursing, pharmacy, even adult ICU trialists who have had experience with these guidelines before. And finally, very important uh, statisticians who helped us with this uh, process of vetting and analyzing these uh, literature uh, explosions that have taken place. The next step for this task force, um, and I chaired this task force as representative of both organizations, um, the next step for us was to define what is the scope and uh, who is this addressed to. And it was very clear that newborns and adults uh, represent distinct physiology problems, questions, which we did not think was appropriate to include in these guidelines. So we focused it on patients who are in the pediatric intensive care unit, but within uh, the age groups of uh, above one month and uh, up to 18 years. We further said that these guidelines truly uh, address patients who stay for longer periods of time, as in uh, more than two to three days, not the uh, patients who come in and recover overnight and then are discharged the next day where uh, it would uh, not seem to apply. But the main questions uh, are in patients who stay longer. And once we define the scope, we said, let us now think of what questions we want to answer. And these questions were put together by the task force. They addressed key areas. They are certainly not comprehensive of all questions plaguing the field, but they address important areas like how do you assess nutrition? Uh, how do you think about how much energy, how much protein? How do you get, deliver that energy and protein? What is the role of um, enteral nutrition, parenteral nutrition, timing, and then finally immunonutrition, which seemed to have many studies developed. We developed these questions, uh, articulated them in a meaningful fashion, and sent it back to the Board of Regents at SECM and Board of Directors at Aspen, who reviewed and approved these as important questions. And then that started us on a process of a literature review. And this is where the statisticians and experts in literature review uh, were extremely helpful. I do believe, Dr. Parker, as individual practitioners, we have variable and to some extent limited uh, expertise in exploring the literature and being able to assimilate it in a best possible way. What we did was identify which databases we would uh, interrogate. We talked about more relevant literature from the last uh, two decades and then went on to uh, try and uh, use a very systematic search strategy. The beauty of this was we uh, 
we actually produce our search strategy in the document. Uh, it is figure one. And what it allows uh, future um, efforts to do is use that search strategy and be able to reproduce the results uh, at any given time by anyone else uh, because it's a detailed search strategy describing the database's keywords. Uh, but more importantly, it could be reproduced in a future time, five, six years from now, uh, when it would start incorporating new evidence. And we thought that was useful. And then the last process was how do you handle these uh, studies that uh, – when interrogated were highlighted by the search. And we used uh, the process, which has now become standard for most organizations, which is the grade process, uh, the gradation um, of recommendations, and then incorporates the assessment and a careful evaluation of how do you translate it into true guideline statements. And we can speak a little bit about that if uh, we have time uh, later on. And then once we um, got these uh, uh, studies and abstracted the data, we created evidence tables. And these evidence tables make the bulk of the manuscript where we describe in an objective fashion every study that we found and its relevance and the results that made us uh, use them to form the guideline statements that we did. And finally, in table one is the summary of all the recommendation statements that the task force, uh, through an iterative process, uh, came up with consensus adhering uh, to the grade methodology, trying to balance literature uh, evidence with the quality and the cost-benefit and the harm-benefit uh, ratio, and, and that is listed in Table 1. Can you highlight some of the key areas of the guidelines and perhaps in particular what has changed since previous documents? Sure. Dr. Parker, uh, one comment uh, before I jump into that is, uh, is, is, again, related to your first question, which is so important, uh, that these are, these are guidelines. And, and it, it, was, uh, it is very clear that while uh, guidelines are helpful for all the reasons that we illustrated earlier, uh, there are limitations to them. And we were very careful in trying to articulate those in this manuscript where we uh, said um, guidelines help assimilate whatever is out there. But what, what is out there in terms of literature is a plethora of variability. There is, um, there is heterogeneous sampling of patients which uh, uh, may or may not be applicable to individuals that you are caring for. There are heterogeneity in study designs. The outcomes are not uh, matched. So it, it was uh, important for us to point out that while we are trying to simplify into recommendations or guideline statements, these should be seen as guidelines and must not replace an individual practitioner's uh, experience, expertise, and an individualized approach to patients when defining nutrition. I, I think that's, that's a very important point to emphasize. And as you look at Table 1, which you mentioned sort of summarizes the results and is a, is a really helpful um, overview of the, the guidelines, it's apparent how weak much of the evidence is although the recommendations sometimes are strong based on the expert opinion, if you will, and the, the state of the art and the practice. You're absolutely right. And, and, and yes, it's very important to be aware of that. And, and these guidelines might change as we become a little more um, down the road with more literature, more evidence, and they have indeed. And, and, and more importantly, the grade allows you to do uh, uh, exactly that, which is um, – you may have 
a very weak study, but it may be an extremely low-impact, meaningful, um, biologically plausible, and common-sense approach, in which case a group of experts with a lot of uh, iterative process and consensus would say, listen, this makes sense, and maybe we should study more, uh, but for now it makes sense. Whereas uh, you may have a randomized control trial with a large number, but have a study design that makes it very difficult to be applicable generally, in which case, once again, you would take a step back and say, am I changing rampant practice uh, based on this first randomized control trial? And our field has learned that lesson in the past um, in terms of how we've not been able to reproduce some of these. Yes, absolutely true. Um, the the final thing was uh, the, the statements uh, we we choose carefully the words wherein we say recommend suggest and it should be seen as that um, and and this is where the responsibility of translating these into statements is on the task force where you don't overemphasize something that does not deserve it. But your question was um, what has changed and uh, what is new in these guidelines. Um, first of all, it is very gratifying that since uh, um, 2009, when I last uh, looked at the guidelines uh, with Aspen, and that was uh, published in the Journal of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, there's been definitely more studies. Uh, this time, we were delighted to have a, a fair number of randomized controlled trials and cohort studies, which seem to answer these eight questions specifically. We had 16 randomized controlled trials in the evidence tables, 37 large cohorts, and, and some were smaller. Uh, that seemed to be specifying uh, a suggested answer to some of those questions. So based on that, what we think um, it deserves highlighting uh, are two aspects. One is what we learned, and one is what we still haven't learned. And we made a, we made a point in this manuscript to uh, highlight both. So for each question, we have uh, described it in the manuscript in the form of specific tables and why we chose what we said, what we uh, recommended, but then we articulate what needs to be the next study or next two studies uh, for questions that are not answered. Now, as far as what we learned, I would highlight three areas. Um, in the uh, interest of time, uh, it would be prudent to say one of the biggest improvements in our understanding of nutrition is our ability to measure metabolic state. And indirect calorimetry has helped us uh, in the last 20 years look into or peek into what's happened to the metabolism in critically ill children. And even in my short uh, lifetime in this field, uh, I've seen our uh, myths uh, broken uh, in regards to what we estimated would be the metabolic state and correspondingly the energy requirement in severely ill children. To give you an example, patients after cardiopulmonary bypass who at one time we thought were one of the most metabolically uh, charged uh, definitely must need a lot of energy. Patients after, uh, patients, some of them on ECMO, uh, certain patients after large surgeries, bone marrow transplants, us and others have shown that actually when you look into their energy expenditure, measure them in the modern PICU with our sedatives and optimal ventilation strategies and anesthesia evolved, we found these patients were hypometabolic. They were, they were not expending energy to the amounts that we once imagined they were. So it was nice to observe that uh, our assumptions of energy requirement were uh, dumbed down a little bit. We, we feel that uh, equations that 
use body weight and sex and were derived in healthy children are no longer applicable for critically ill children. Uh, they put them at risk for overfeeding in a majority of patients. In fact, some, uh, they also cause underfeeding because we find occasionally we are able to not estimate hypermetabolism as well. So the bottom line was, as far as the energy requirement is concerned, we've learned from uh, careful measurements that we are unable to predict accurately. We are prone to overestimate or underestimate, and therefore a renewed attention to energy delivery should be made. What we've suggested, uh, based on so many studies with indirect calorimetry, is that if you do have the resources, do try to measure energy expenditure and learn and be guided by that. But it's not available everywhere. Not everyone has the resources for it. In that case, be careful with the estimating equations that we've learned to use over decades. These equations were not developed for critically ill patients and do not uh, indiscriminately add stress factors, presuming that our patients need a lot of energy. So that was the first uh, area that I wanted to highlight. The, the second part about this energy was having said what we just said, how much should we feed in terms of energy? And uh, one um, aspect here was there are no large randomized control trials uh, looking at dosing of energy, low versus high. And perhaps this kind of thinking is flawed. Uh, I look around my ICU today and there is so much heterogeneity in terms of disease state, disease type, the timing of illness, that to imagine a standard approach or a uniform number for all our patients is probably not feasible biologically, a fool's errand, if you like. And therefore, uh, there should not be a, an expectation, as it is in adults, that we come up with a number and that's how we feed. But the theme is beware of overfeeding. And if you do calculate or estimate or measure your energy expenditure with the best intentions, uh, with the help of your dietitians at work, we would recommend it is not necessary to target 100% of that right away. Allow the child to stabilize and then shoot for two-thirds of those goals. And these numbers, the two-thirds comes from large observational cohorts where achieving two-thirds uh, seems to be associated with better outcomes than fasting them and not delivering any energy or much lesser energy. So the energy debate, the energy question can be rounded out by saying, be careful about this inaccuracy of uh, our estimates. Uh, try to be aware of energy overfeeding and underfeeding. Be aware of what you are giving and the cumulative deficits if you are not able to feed a child for days together or if you are feeding too much, probably going 100, 120% what was, rec uh, what was estimated uh, for too many days in these cases overfeeding. And then finally shoot for at least two thirds uh, and that would be a prudent approach to targeting energy. I think that is the energy question, uh, Dr. Parker. Any uh, any thoughts, any questions on that piece? I, I think you have um, made a very strong point about the importance of measuring it and being careful and, and not just using the sort of standard, oh, they must be stressed, therefore we have to give them however much percent more than a normal child would get. I, I, I think that's an important point that you have outlined. Thank you, Dr. Parker. The second piece that is new and which we should talk about, and it's probably going to remain in the spotlight uh, for a few years until we solve the, uh, the riddle, is uh, protein. Uh, protein remains an exciting macronutrient for us in the ICU. 
There are two reasons for that. One is protein appears to be central to the way the body responds to critical illness or, or, or the metabolic stress. Uh, and it's been like that for uh, our evolution as humans. What humans have done in order to survive illness while they don't have access to food um, is way back resorted to stored protein and um, resorted to evolved uh, neuroendocrine processes that break down our internal resources with amino acids available now to the body to take part in the inflammatory fight, to take part in healing of uh, uh, tissue injury, to produce uh, glucose by ne uh, gluconeogenetic mechanisms. So it has been a, an evolutionary response that has served as well. And, and to this date, it, it seems to be a central part of how we think about the goals of nutrition in a critically ill patient. What happens as a result of this evolutionary response is in a protracted illness, one sees a profound loss of muscle mass, which gets degraded for the amino acids to be released. And while in the initial stages of evolution, this was extremely helpful, allowed humans to survive during the hunter-gatherer era, in the modern era, we quickly begin to start accumulating side effects of this. Um, and, uh, and in protracted illnesses, as we survive, um, this starts manifesting with profound muscle loss, both in the adult, elderly, but also in the pediatric, particularly in the burn literature. These are associated with very poor outcomes. And as a result, dietitians for a long time have said they would uh, focus their nutritional prescriptions, their therapies, their uh, supplements to trying to preserve muscle mass. Now, the muscle mass preservation, unfortunately, is challenging because unlike uh, in starvation, which also has a similar breakdown of body resources to provide uh, during periods of starvation, unlike in starvation, in metabolic stress of critical illness, just simple provision of energy back or provision of even protein back does not cut this metabolic stress, catabolism, or protein breakdown. So critical illness protein breakdown, unlike starvation, continues even after you feed certain amounts um, of food. If you imagine starvation, I could completely abolish this process by starting to uh, reintroduce food into me, uh, but not so in critical illness. So we've looked for other ways of cutting down that protein breakdown, and the burn literature is so uh, ahead of the general pediatric literature in terms of pharmacotherapies uh, and endocrine uh, therapies to try to ablate this protein catabolism. But in general pediatric critical illness, we don't have access to or the evidence for those strategies. So we are left with trying to say, can I offset these losses by making sure that I now at least provide enough protein to maintain synthesis, and as a result, my balance doesn't become too low. And that remains the main theory uh, postulated for providing enough protein during critical illness. Now, this results in two things. Uh, sorry, this was the first piece. Uh, the second part of the puzzle, or the second reason why protein is in the spotlight, in addition to this pathophysiologic or biologic plausibility of providing protein, are these association studies, large association studies, which suggest people deprived or 
um, or given in uh, suboptimal amounts of protein have very poor outcomes after accounting for everything else. And then in this version of the guidelines, we have half a dozen randomized controlled trial studies which show low versus high protein uh, diets in critically ill patients uh, that show improved outcomes. So those are the reasons why it has uh, the spotlight on it right now. There are two caveats to mention here once again while interpreting the data. It was nice to have the evidence tables and learn that, yes, the biologically plausible protein supplementation is manifesting itself in improving outcomes in trials, but these outcomes that they studied in these trials are still only intermediate. So most of these trials talk about the benefits of protein in improving protein balance, in improving the actual measured nitrogen uh, balance in versus out. And while it is an intermediate and important outcome, we still have to show protein interventions resulting in meaningful outcome recovery. And that's why um, I, I said this is going to be an area to watch out for because trials are being uh, planned to look into it. So what we've summarized with the six randomized controlled trials and another half a dozen large observational cohort studies is it appears that a minimum of 1.5 grams per kg uh, per day of protein delivery seems to be prudent because it is this threshold that needs to be achieved if one needs to be in a positive or an even protein balance to try to offset the protein breakdown. What this means in terms of outcomes, for long-term outcomes, is uh, to be seen further. And when we talk about protein, there are certain situations where this message is clearer uh, and that is burn injury in particular. And I would refer the the listeners um, and people interested in this subject to look up the burn literature, which uh, many people have articulated beautifully, uh, in which case there is absolutely no doubt that protein intakes are associated with much better muscle mass preservation, particularly if they are combined with other uh, strategies such as pharmacotherapy or even physical therapy. The protein debate evolves around how do you deliver this goal that we articulated. Okay, I get that 1.5 grams is a threshold per kilogram. How best to deliver it? And that's where then it becomes a little nuanced. What we found is most studies that have shown benefit of protein, were uh, high versus low, uh, have delivered it via enteral routes. So once again, uh, what is uh, the best strategy? It depends not only on the dose, both for energy and protein, but also how one delivers it, enteral versus parenteral. And that leads us to the third area, which I would like to highlight in these guidelines, which is the route of delivery, and particularly the parenteral uh, nutrition route. There is no doubt that enteral nutrition is preferred. It's an accepted fact that physiology-based experiments done in uh, animals and, and eventually translated into humans for years uh, suggest uh, huge benefits of enteral nutrition, both to the gut mucosa, uh, to the um, uh, immune uh, response, uh, but also in terms of the benefits of delivering these macronutrients, which are much more pronounced enterally than parenterally. But there is a role for parental nutrition, and since its discovery in the 60s or development in the 60s as a safe mode of saving lives in patients with no enteral uh, possibility of nutrient delivery, we've learned of some of its uh, ill effects when it is used indiscriminately. So this is a welcome area 
And uh, it is an area where we had one of our largest randomized control trials, uh, which is the PEPANI trial, uh, which came out of Belgium, Rotterdam, uh, Netherlands, and uh, uh, in Alberta, Canada, three centers, uh, which looked at, in particular, the timing of supplemental parental nutrition in the pediatric intensive care unit. And we should talk about that study uh, just to frame the question of timing of parental nutrition. Dr. Parker, uh, we should spend a few minutes talking about the PEPANIC trial uh, and the question of when does one use parental nutrition as a supplement to enteral nutrition, uh, which may not be able to achieve the goal that we chose to deliver. The question is very key. We said earlier that uh, a focus uh, on enteral and uh, parental nutrition has always been the case because enteral is preferred, but parental nutrition might need to be delivered uh, in order to reach our goal when enteral nutrition is either not available or is insufficient. But we had little knowledge about when should we start, which is tantamount to saying, when do I trade off the ill effects of the parental nutrition route versus the ill effects of depriving calories and protein to a child who is critically ill. The PEPANIC trial uh, was published in New England Journal of Medicine, and um, it has now been over a year and has uh, been one of the largest trials in recent times. The trial was conducted in three centers, 1,440 critically ill patients, uh, which included newborns uh, up to the age of 18 years, admitted in three centers in uh, Netherlands, Belgium, and Canada. These patients were randomized to receive either the early, uh, early parental nutrition arm or the late parental nutrition arm. Those randomized to the early parental nutrition arm received parental nutrition within 24 hours of admission to the ICU. They received this nutrition mode if enteral nutrition did not reach 80% of the goal within that time. On the other hand, the late parental nutrition arm, patients received parental nutrition on day eight after admission if enteral nutrition was not 80% of the prescribed goal by then. Patients were otherwise uh, standardized in terms of how enteral nutrition was attempted and advanced based on institutional protocols. There were significant discrepancies in uh, how PN was prescribed based on local institutional preferences, the composition. There were differences in glycemic control. One of the centers, particularly uh, Belgium, uh, was uh, uh, practicing tight glycemic control while the other two were not. So there were some uh, differences there. Uh, and the way the energy and protein goals were determined for these patients were completely different in each site. Uh, in particular, one center had indirect calorimetry while the other two used uh, estimated equations. The caveat for this study was uh, the two arms that were uh, chosen for randomization seemed to be not what current prevailing practice reflected, and only a minority of centers would do either of those, and most of us uh, did a nuanced approach between two to seven days. There was definitely a need to answer this, uh, and therefore this trial was well um, received when it was published, and the results were that if you uh, compared the two groups, the late arm, which is patients who received PN only on day eight, uh, seemed to do better in multiple outcomes, uh, in particular infections, length of stay on ventilators, length of stay in the PICU and hospital. This trial puts some light into PN practice, and uh, we reviewed the trial. The document that the guideline document goes into some details describing 
the trial limitations, in particular the generalizability, the validity, external validity of this trial because of the nature of the populations, the practice at those centers, and the two extreme arms. But despite all those caveats, we learned some important lessons here. The trial put a spotlight on the practice of early parental nutrition, and and it, it reminds us that uh, early parental nutrition is not without its uh, problems. And one of the things we've recommended based on this trial is if you are a center that uh, universally or uh, just in all your patients uses an early PN approach, and by that we mean within 24 hours, it's probably wise to stop that and go for a, a delayed approach. Now, the delayed approach, uh, we don't know exactly how to define that. It it doesn't necessarily mean that every patient in the PICU should not have uh, parental nutrition, specifically those that are vulnerable, like the malnourished, the newborns, the patients on ECMO who are completely dependent on parental nutrition, uh, in whom the enteral nutrition may be either not available as an option or is very minimal. In those patients, we recommend, and this is where consensus and prudence comes in, uh, we would recommend based on a large number of observational and other lower level trials that a an individualized approach be adopted. And in some patients, you may have to do it earlier than day eight. But if your patients are completely healthy, well-nourished to begin with, and then come up with critical illness, you are able to advance enteral nutrition. One would focus on enteral nutrition and not worry about parental nutrition during the first week of illness. And, and this was uh, an, an, a very interesting uh, study. It helped recalibrate our attention on the route of nutrition. And along with the energy question where we soften some of our expectations of resting energy expenditure in critically ill patients, uh, we suspect that uh, the guidelines uh, are alarming uh, some people who might have practices that result in overfeeding and therefore recalibrate some of our practices towards more optimal feeding, the, if you like, the less is more approach. So there are a lot of unanswered questions um, identified in this document, which I think is one of the strengths of the document. Can you talk about some of the areas that we most need to um, learn more about? Absolutely. Um, and, and it's okay to have uh, unanswered questions as long as we have identified them um, and tried to come up with a strategy to prioritize those questions to be answered by future research. Uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, we, were, we were most excited about uh, trying to articulate those and list those. The overarching theme in terms of what is unanswered is the one about the impact of nutrition on outcomes. And uh, an enthusiast of nutrition will admit readily, uh, me being one of them, that uh, we have uh, failed to conduct meaningful trials that have actually given us outcomes associations. And while we have understood a lot about intermediate physiology in metabolism, in protein catabolism, immunonutrition, it is time to move on to the next phase of studies that start articulating the impact of nutrition on outcomes. These outcomes could be short-term. Uh, if the goal is to preserve muscle mass, let us start thinking about ways in which to describe, assess, and document muscle mass with different strategies. And if I can send my patient home after a bout of steps for three weeks with at least some 
muscle mass intact and not completely um, degraded, uh, that would be a, a useful outcome. It would be nice if we could translate the muscle mass uh, preservation into functional outcomes, and uh, this is where we fall behind adults, where their studies have a, an easier uh, way to document that, but also a need to document the ability for the individual to re-contribute to society after this, this illness. In children, we have uh, neglected that, and now the focus is on how do these children grow, develop intellectual capability, strength. So I think the functional outcomes are going to be key in nutritional interventions. And that's where we will be judged in terms of the, the interest and the enthusiasm for various therapies, not just nutrition in critical care. To add to that, I would say uh, quality of life is an important one as well. Um, and as in every other therapy, uh, there will be a focus on how quality of life is impacted by nutrition. So that was the overarching theme. There is one other area that we need to work on before we can take steps into specific uh, questions to answer, and that is uh, to get some of our definitions and some of our interventions uh, streamlined so that when we conduct studies in the future, people uh, who are looking at guidelines, people who are developing uh, guidelines or systematically evaluating the studies have an easier time comparing these studies, putting them together, and uh, developing uh, some kind of cumulative experience uh, that everyone can share. Unfortunately, currently, the guidelines uh, are based on studies that have been done in completely variable fashions. And, and I hope that we, in the near future, come up with a uniform strategy to define certain nutritional states and then interventions and, more importantly, outcomes. And there is an effort on, in all fields, uh, including nutrition, to come up with a core set of well-defined um, uh, elements that should be collected in all studies going further. So that was a broad theme where we need some work so that the field moves faster and in the right direction. As far as specific questions, uh, I, I go through this process in my mind in terms of a patient arriving to the bedside, me beginning to think about, amongst other therapies, the nutritional strategy for this patient while resuscitation, recovery, and after recovery. And the following things come to mind. We need studies that allow us to articulate who are the ones more at risk. What is nutritional risk? Which nutritional parameters help me identify patients who are malnourished and therefore more susceptible to nutritional deterioration and therefore should be targeted for attention in a limited resource environment uh, for nutritional targets uh, in the near future? This was one of the criticisms of the Pepanic study where they used strong kids as a nutritional assessment strategy, which has been discredited, discredited as a, a good discriminator of high-risk patients, and therefore we don't know what the PEPANIC approach would have been in patients who are very vulnerable. Would they be harmed by the long delay in parental nutrition? So strategies to assess to categorize and therefore allow us to target vulnerable patients at the outset uh, and uh, is one of the first things uh, that comes to mind. As we go further down, since indirect chlorometry is not available to everybody, can we come up with better ways of understanding energy on an ongoing basis? And there are various uh, efforts to try to do that. In the modern pediatric intensive care unit, elements of metabolism are visible to us 
if we just try to look deeper, V.CO2, a minute-to-minute carbon dioxide production is one one example of uh, a number at the bedside which has such uh, implications to the underlying metabolism within, uh, if, if measured and interpreted appropriately, that it could guide some of our therapies. Similarly, um, can we develop a better understanding of protein breakdown so that we can identify patients who definitely wouldn't uh, benefit from an early intervention with protein mobilization or even in the future pharmacotherapeutics like in the burn population so that we can achieve the goal of protein preservation, strength preservation. Then comes the area of feeding and enteral nutrition, which has made so much progress in terms of our understanding of safe strategies could could use some more help. <clears throat> One area that is uh, ripe for study, and I'm, uh, I'm delighted that it is being addressed, is um, how do you assess for enteral intolerance? Uh, we are all interested in nutritional delivery, but it has to be safe. And there are patients who just would not tolerate an aggressive enteral uh, nutrition approach. And our ability to identify, define, and therefore uh, be aware of patients who are intolerant to enteral nutrition would allow us to safely deliver nutrition. There are studies ongoing which might guide us on the right enteral uh, area to target. Is it gastric or post-pyloric? Uh, the evidence remains scarce. And uh, in a year from now, we shall have few studies that will help uh, both those questions in enteral nutrition. The parental nutrition debate uh, needs to further evolve from the day one to day eight um, and try and help specific groups where a, an individualized approach uh, might be helpful. And perhaps that would require studies that are designed in special populations where the answer is more relevant. And then finally, um, immunonutrition, which remains fascinating as a concept. The concept that a nutrient food it can also act like a drug has fascinated people for years uh, and it has spawned the whole area of immunonutrition and so many eminent members of our field have tried to address uh, that particular concept as a strategy and perhaps a, a a better uh, design, um, better ability to uh, identify which patients would benefit from immunonutrition might help the field move forward. At present, the guidelines document suggests that there is no evidence to provide immunonutrition to your patients in the pediatric intensive care unit. So these are some of the areas, Dr. Parker, that I would highlight, that we highlighted as a task force to say uh, must be addressed by the next wave of studies. And hopefully in a few years, uh, as uh, should happen with all guidelines, when we or someone else hopefully uh, tries to revise these guidelines, we may have more evidence and uh, more questions answered. And the ones that we've answered right now, either uh, refuted or fine-tuned in terms of recommendation. You have provided an incredibly comprehensive and articulate overview of these guidelines and the issues that face the nutritional care of the critically ill child, and I really appreciate your um, uh, talking with us today. Do you have any final comments on how one thinks about the nutritional approach in the critically ill child in 2018? Thank you, Dr. Parker, for your comments. I, I really appreciate this. Um, 
Yes, I think this is a, a good question. We've talked about the challenges with guidelines, and we've talked about how they evolve. So what do I do right now in 2018? And I think the one uh, aspect that one learns about emerging evidence is um, there isn't place for dogma, and one needs to be flexible uh, in one's approach. And that means walk up to individual patients and try to use these guidelines as a starting point. And... Uh, and then from there on, try to see how those guidelines would apply to this individual patient. Think about the risk benefit of the uh, strategy that you are choosing. And more importantly, be prepared to alter or fine tune your strategy based on early identifications of uh, when those strategies don't work. Uh, a prudent approach would be to try and be conservative uh, about energy to begin with. Um, in some patients, it is okay not to go to 100%. Try to be a little more thoughtful, though, about how much the patient is receiving. We often find that uh, we walk away from the bedside prescribing an energy or protein target, but come back and find this was not delivered. So perhaps a little more thoughtful about what is exactly being delivered. The second aspect would be uh, think about the tools available as this area evolves to guide you on underfeeding or overfeeding that particular patient. At this stage, uh, what I would do is uh, emphasize the importance of nutrition and simply the awareness. So it becomes part of discussion and uh, an important area in the multifaceted treatment strategies that we provide in critical care environments. In our institution, as in so many others, the dietitian is an integral part of the rounding team. One does not leave the bed space without articulating the, the nutritional plan. And sometimes the plan may be doing nothing because it is not time to go there. The patient is being resuscitated. And sometimes the plan may focus on where, where are we with the nutrition of this child. Let us not forget that we are accruing uh, morbidities from uh, neglecting that area too. So just awareness and giving it its rightful place in daily discussions tools to try to assimilate uh, uh, the data that guides us in terms of whether our strategies are working or not. And then finally, uh, some way to uniformly document what we are doing uh, using EMR as best as we can so that we can learn uh, from some of our practices and um, and, and its impact on outcomes. I wish the field would uh, evolve faster into once again becoming pediatricians that we are at the core and following up our patients and seeing what happens to them when they go out to the rehab facilities, when, when they leave with a thumbs up, some of them barely able to give a thumbs up because of the weakness acquired and see what happens out there and, and help those observations guide our strategies in the ICU. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Dr. Mehta. It's really been very informative. Dr. Parker, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, I really appreciate you doing uh, this, and thank you for all your guidance and support over the years. We have been talking today with Dr. Nilesh Mehta from Boston Children's Hospital about the guidelines for the provision and assessment of nutrition support therapy in the pediatric critically ill patient from the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, published in the July 2017 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. This podcast is supported by an educational grant provided by Abbott Nutrition.
Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include sepsis and septic shock in children. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.